The threat of COVID is still with us this Halloween. It's all about Delta. That's the scariest monster uh, as Halloween arrives, I think. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego's community colleges forgive millions in student debt. We realize that one of the obstacles that prevents students from re-enrolling and making progress towards their degree or certificate is the debt that they're burdened with. San Diego County supervisors agree to explore new alternative energy sources. And the San Diego Asian Film Festival is back in person and in theaters. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. The imminent approval of COVID vaccines for children and San Diego's healthy vaccination rates are good reasons for optimism as we head into the holiday season. But local doctors are warning that we are still not back to normal this Halloween. The highly contagious Delta variant is still keeping new cases and hospitalizations from COVID at unacceptably high levels. So the experts say even though this Halloween is not as scary as last year, precautions need to be in place to keep trick-or-treaters safe. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. Despite all the hopeful news we've been hearing about vaccines lately, you say COVID case rates in San Diego are about the same as last year at this time. Why? Uh, You know, it's all about Delta, that's the scariest monster uh, as Halloween arrives, I think. Um, You know, it has proven that it is more than twice as capable of infecting people as the previous versions that were circulating uh, last Halloween. And so uh, it's really interesting to see that this uh, mutation of this virus has really made the case rate hang steady, even though we've seen so much more vaccination in the population than we had last year. How does the percentage of positive COVID tests compare now to a year ago? We're just slightly lower than we were last year. I think the latest report came in at 2.8% of uh, tests coming back positive. Uh, And the the number on the same day uh, last year was 3.1%. So we see a a slightly lower percentage of all tests coming back positive, but a uh, a significantly or, or somewhat significantly higher case rate per capita. And what about hospitalizations? 
Hospitalizations uh, are a little higher this year. We're, we're at almost 300 hospitalizations in the most recent report this week. And, and I think it was uh, in the mid 200s last year, uh, though it's important to note that they changed the way that they count hospitalizations over the last year. So I think you probably call that a wash in terms of, of the number of people with COVID who are in the hospital. It's, it's about the same as it was last year. And they've also changed the number of COVID tests that they've been doing from last year, haven't they? That's right. You know, when kids are kids are back in school now, and uh, so if they have contact with somebody who tests positive for COVID, then they need to get tested. So it's just created a massive demand for testing this fall. Uh, in late summer as, as kids have gone back to school and also as employers have required their unvaccinated employees uh, to get tested regularly. That's especially the case in healthcare, which is a huge employer in San Diego. If you're not vaccinated, you have to get tested twice a week. So that really, uh, that means that a lot more tests are being done. And, and when a lot more tests are being done, you're gonna, going to find more cases that you might not have otherwise found. What is San Diego's overall vaccination rate right now? Uh, San Diego has, I think, about two thirds of, of all residents uh, fully vaccinated. It's about 80 percent of those who are eligible. Uh, remember that only those age 12 and older are currently approved to get vaccinated. Uh, the, the county tends to count it by, uh, you know, as a percentage of those who are qualified to get vaccinated. Uh, but I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the fact that kids younger than 12 uh, make up a significant part of this population, and none of them are vaccinated, and all of them are perfectly capable of transmitting this virus to others. Well, that's the point, though. The one group who can't be vaccinated, those young children up to 12 years old, they will be making up the bulk of the trick-or-treaters on Sunday. So does that have health officials concerned? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're cautious uh, about overstating their concern, uh, but they, they just don't. It does. It seems like as a matter of public uh, health policy, they're just not quite ready to say, OK, everybody rip your uh, N95 masks off and go trick or treat and, and have a good time and, and go to all of those Halloween parties with no precautions in place. You know, they, the, the fact that Delta variant remains, you know, a spreading concern in San Diego County uh, just causes them to to kind of continue to counsel some caution, although they do say that there's really not a lot of concern with something like trick-or-treating if you're being careful. Uh, You know, as far as the science can tell, uh, there isn't a huge amount of danger in terms of Halloween candy and that kind of thing. Uh, Surface transmission of this virus really has not turned out to be nearly as big a deal as we thought it was this time last year. Now, this year, do they say it's enough to wear a costume mask or do kids need more than that? Uh, you know, if you if you talk to the experts, if you talk to the public health folks or folks, uh, you know, over at UCSD, they're pretty much universally recommending a, a more um, medical type mask. Uh, they're saying that, that regular uh, costume masks are are not quite enough, uh, mostly uh, given that Delta spreads more easily and people tend to carry a higher viral load, uh, which means that you have a larger uh, number of viruses uh, in your body than you did with previous uh, versions of the virus. So so the, uh, the experts are all cautioning to use medical masks. If you've been to a, a grocery store or Home Depot or what have you recently and looked around, you, you'll see that, that uh, the populace in general has 
to a large degree, moved away from masking. And so it's really anybody's guess whether anybody's going to listen to the, the public health uh, desire for more masking on Halloween, uh, you know, uh, but that's definitely what they are advising. So trick-or-treating outdoors is pretty safe, kids wearing the right masks and all. But what about Halloween parties? They're still not being encouraged, are they? Uh, that's right. Uh, we we know that parties, at least last year, uh, with a less transmissible virus, were really where uh, where our big spike in cases over the winter came from. People gathering uh, close to each other in uh, in rooms and places uh, with with confined uh, air supply, where where you have a lot of people hanging out for hours and talking and having a good time. Uh, that puts a lot of virus in the air and. Uh, and that is really the one of the main transmission routes that drives this pandemic. So, so I think they're all uh, quite worried that we're still going to see quite a lot of transmission uh, just from parties this holiday season, starting with Halloween and, and moving into Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, and so they are really, really urging, uh, you know, especially parties uh, where you don't know that everyone is vaccinated. So the advice on Halloween is pretty much the same as last year. That's right. Uh, you know, I think we all thought that it might be a little different this year, uh, given all the vaccination that was going on, you know, starting in the winter and, and through the spring. And, and uh, you know, and when when all of the uh, restrictions came down in mid-June. Uh, but, you know, this Delta variant, just because it's so much more transmissible, uh, just really has put Halloween right back in the spot that it was in a year ago. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you. Thank you. A new tuition debt forgiveness program at San Diego Community Colleges is being called a lifeline for struggling students. The colleges will be forgiving $3.9 million in student debt. More than 11,000 students who were enrolled last spring through summer in City, Mesa, or Miramar Community Colleges will have their outstanding payments waived. The district is using federal pandemic relief funds to cover the debt. Officials say the program will make it possible for thousands of students to continue their college educations. Joining me is San Diego Community College District Chancellor Carlos Turner-Cortez. And welcome, Chancellor Cortez. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us, Maureen. And also joining us is Associated Student Government President at Miramar College, Edward Borick. Edward, welcome. Good morning, Maureen. So, Chancellor, why did the district decide a program like this was needed? The COVID pandemic has unfortunately produced many negative outcomes uh, for higher education institutions. We're seeing enrollments plummet. We're seeing students struggle to focus on their schoolwork when they have various external pressures that are preventing them from being successful. And, and we are very lucky to have received $140 million roughly in federal stimulus funding, 50 million of which is required to go directly to students in, in cash aid. Uh, we are using portion of the institutional funds to eliminate student debt because we realize that one of the obstacles that prevent students from re-enrolling and making progress towards their degree or certificate is the debt that they're burdened with. And part of that debt, in the instance of 11,000 plus students, is debt that they owe to the college uh, for library fines or past due tuition fees. And we thought if we have this unique opportunity to erase that debt, why not maximize that opportunity to support our students during these difficult times? And Chancellor, how will the debt forgiveness program work? Who qualifies? 
These are uh, 11,454 students who were enrolled in our college since 2021 will have their outstanding tuition and related enrollment fees forgiven. Holds for non-payment will be removed and students will be eligible to enroll in the January intercession and spring 22 semester. So we're currently in the process of notifying students who may not have enrolled this past fall because they knew they owed the college money. By releasing this debt, it removes any hold from their account and allows them to re-enroll, and it gives them a fresh start, a clean start, to re-engage in the community college and to refocus themselves on their educational, personal, and career goals. Can you give us an idea of how much an average student who qualifies for this program might owe? It ranges significantly. I mean, it could be as little as, you know, five to ten dollars for a library fee to several hundred dollars, thousands of dollars based on each individual circumstance. But, you know, we, we are committed to supporting the whole student here in our college district. Unfortunately, we're required to charge these fees in order to ensure that, that we're making the best use of public dollars. But with this unique opportunity with stimulus funding, we're being allowed to use this funding to re-engage students who may have been disconnected from higher education during the COVID pandemic. And so we're using this unique opportunity with supplemental funding to ensure that our most vulnerable students can return to school. Now, in the announcement about the debt forgiveness program, you said community college students in particular would benefit from this help because many are from underserved communities. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, you know, community colleges serve a, a wide span of students, but um, I think most people are, are aware that uh, the most vulnerable students who pursue higher education often uh, come through the community college student because we're, we're a full access institution. Anyone who walks through our doors, we will serve at our three credit colleges, San Diego City College, San Diego Mesa College, and San Diego Miramar College, along with our very large non-credit division, the College of Continuing Education, we serve over 100,000 students per year. About 11,000 of those students, unfortunately, were not able to enroll in fall because they have pending debt. And we know many of these students are eager to return to school, but their personal financial circumstances, their, their need for childcare and transportation and housing, in many cases, are more important um, to the immediate needs of our students. And so by eliminating this debt, we're helping students once again to uh, get a fresh start and to re-engage their journey to realize their personal goals. Now, Edward, you're student government president at Miramar College. You get to hear a lot of students' stories. They talk to you. How important do you think this debt forgiveness program is? It's immensely important. Um, you're right that I get to speak with my fellow students all the time. In fact, yesterday we had an on-campus event outside and several dozen students that I spoke with directly. You know, their stories of where they come from and where they want to go hinges on what they do at our local community colleges. And having, as Dr. Cortez said, even five or $10 keeping them from pursuing that education. This decision to forgive $3.9 million in student debt is something that is going to be so impactful for my student peers um, because they will be able to go on and do the things that they want to do. And again, that barrier to access of five to $10 for a library book or several hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars for tuition, that can change someone's life. Edward, would you share with us maybe someone's personal story about struggling to keep up with tuition during the pandemic? Yeah, you know, as you said, with the pandemic, so many students have been victims of circumstance of the pandemic. And I wouldn't be able to just pick out one because there are so many. 
And that really is the tragedy here. But the SCCCD is taking steps to rectify that and to help students who either lost a job or their parents lost a job. Um, in fact, one member of our student government that was elected at the end of last year to serve this year had to withdraw from all classes because both her parents lost their jobs and she had to take a, a second job that didn't leave time to take classes. And that right there, you know, if her family had access or better access to financial assistance, then maybe that student would have been able to continue with her education, continue to advocate for her fellow students as I am doing, and her life would be a lot different. Let me ask you both a question. You know, there's a continuing push from some politicians to erase all student debt and make public colleges free. Chancellor, do you think that should be the ultimate goal? Yes, yes, yes. Um, You know, California community colleges used to be free. And even though the cost per student to enroll is relatively low, and and roughly 70% of our students pay no enrollment fees whatsoever, there are other costs associated with education um, that aren't taken into consideration, particularly for our community college systems. You know, here in the state of California, we invest significantly more resources in K-12 students, in the Cal State and the UC system, but we don't recognize the, the real financial challenges that our community college students face. Um, when they enroll in our community colleges, they don't receive support, again, with housing, transportation, childcare, groceries, healthcare. And, and so by eliminating the cost of tuition, we certainly would provide an advantage to the most vulnerable students in our community to help them uh, to, to transform their lives and the lives of their families for generations to come. So yes, absolutely. Our district uh, was one of the first districts in the country to launch a promise campaign. I'm proud to announce that this past fall, we raised $1 million to expand our free community college program beyond what the state is funding to encourage uh, adult learners uh, who who may not have been college ready when they came out of high school to have a second chance to enroll in free community college. So we're doing our part here in San Diego and we're thrilled to learn that there's increasing support around the country to expand free community college opportunities to students. And Edward, what kind of difference do you think free community college would make? All the difference in the world, really. You know, nobody bats an eye at saying K through 12 schools should be free and open to all people who live in this country. And a higher education degree is no longer a luxury, it's a necessity for so many fields. Making community colleges free for all students, regardless of their socioeconomic status or citizenship, is going to open up doors for our country as a whole to progress into the 21st century. And it is removing a very large barrier to access for so many. Well, I want to thank you both so much for speaking with me. I've been speaking with San Diego Community College District Chancellor Carlos Turner-Cortez and Associated Student Government President at Miramar College, Edward Borick. Thank you both. Thank you, Maureen, very much. Thank you for having us. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, 
and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. A recent proposal unanimously passed by the San Diego Board of Supervisors looks to examine the feasibility of a number of alternative energy sources in San Diego County. The vote is part of the county's regional decarbonization framework that hopes to ultimately eliminate carbon dioxide emissions and greatly reduce pollution. While officials have high hopes for the future of cleaner energy in the region, much needs to be done before San Diego can shake its dependency on fossil fuels. Joining me with more is Rob Nicoleski, an energy reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Rob, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Jade. Uh, Can you tell us some more about these different kinds of alternative energy that are being considered with this proposal? Well, yeah, there are basically three that they're looking at. One of them is wave energy, and that's something that's not a whole lot of people are familiar with. Basically, wave energy is something is a uh, process in which uh, scientists and people in technology are trying to find ways to harness the power of tides that you have in an ocean and be able to use that and harness that as a source of energy. Problem with the wave energy is that it's basically still very much in its infancy, and there's been some difficulty trying to get that harnessed. The other thing that um, the county is looking at, in addition to solar and wind, is also trying to develop some offshore wind projects. And that's mostly been seen in the East Coast and in Europe. Hasn't really come out to the West Coast yet. And then the third thing is uh, geothermal. Geothermal makes up about 6% of California's in-state electricity. Mostly it's found in Northern California, outside about 60, 70 miles outside of San Francisco at the geysers. So it hasn't really come down to Southern California, but those are some of the three things that the uh, County Board of Supervisors has taken a look at. And this proposal passed unanimously. Are we seeing a lot of bipartisan support for alternative energy? At least on the, on the county level, yes, there there is some. And Joel Anderson, who's a Republican, joined with uh, Mason Fletcher, the chair of the County Board of Supervisors, to introduce this. I talked to Supervisor Anderson about this. He said, uh, and he emphasized that they don't know for sure if wave energy, geothermal in Southern California, offshore wind will be that viable. But he said it's worth asking the questions about. And there are some questions about each of those, about the feasibility of, of, of each of those three sources. Supervisor Joel Anderson, as you just mentioned, made it uh, made a point to say that options beyond wind and solar uh, should be explored. Are, are these other options being used in other parts of the country to any success? Offshore wind, as I mentioned, was basically been something that you've seen in Europe. European countries have been able to develop that more quickly. There's been a lot of onshore uh, wind development throughout the United States. The problem with offshore wind, specifically to California, has been that, and I've written about this in the past, is that the military in California, they've got real concerns and they put blocked up, essentially blocked off a whole portion, all of Southern California and a portion of Central California, because 
they are afraid that if you put these really, really large wind turbines up, that it will interfere with military operations. So we've mostly seen discussion about offshore wind. There have not been any offshore wind uh, facilities built in California yet, but most of that uh, discussion has been in Northern California. But since I wrote this story last week, I saw something where there's been some discussion in Ventura County, which is certainly part of Southern California, about putting something within on the state waters of, uh, of offshore Ventura County. So we'll see what happens down the road. But for the most part, it looks like offshore wind is mostly going to be something that you'd see in Northern California. And what are some of the major hurdles in the way of San Diego's transition to cleaner energy? Well, I think the biggest hurdle is the fact that we have a lot of solar. We have a decent amount of wind uh, in Southern California, so to speak. But the problem with solar and wind is that they're not dispatchable. And that means uh, by energy standards that they cannot be relied upon 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The problem with solar is that even though it's very abundant during the daylight hours, once the sun goes down, you're not able to get to generate any more solar. Problem with wind, sort of parallel, is that you can get a lot of wind when the wind's blowing, but when it's not, you don't. Now, one of the possible solutions that the state governments and local governments have been looking at is energy storage, like battery storage. Well, one of the problems with battery storage would be, and that, that's something that you could dispatch during the night, during the times when the uh, electric grid is under the most stress. But one of the problems with battery storage right now is that it's hard to find something that can dispatch electricity more than four hours. So obviously, we've got more than four hours of nighttime that we have to be able to tide over. So and those are some of the big hurdles that renewable energy faces right now. And it seems that one of the major obstacles, too, in completing these projects is community opposition to building them in the first place. How are residents feeling about the prospects of these new energy sources being built in their backyard? That's a good question, because um, I think we stop people on the street, especially in California. If you ask them about clean energy, almost unanimously, people say, yes, we want to have more clean energy and have less polluting sources. The big question is, becomes, do you, where do you, it, what happens if that, if a proposed new uh, renewable energy facility is in your own backyard? And that there's an example of that is in, uh, in the town of Hocumba, um, the County Board of Supervisors uh, approved um, a project that would, a big solar project, um, and also would have a little bit of battery storage right outside, literally right next to the city limits of the town of Acumba. And most of the residents there came out strongly against it. And there's a lawsuit trying to stop it. Their argument being that the facility would be so large that it would basically subsume the entire a small town of Acumba. So we'll see what happens as far as that lawsuit goes. But as for right now, that project has been approved and should be, uh, ground should be broken on that later at the end, either at the end of this year or the beginning of next. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune energy reporter, Rob Nikoleski. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Jade.
The San Diego County Health Department reports that more than 365,000 people in our region have been infected with COVID-19 since the pandemic began. That's created an up-and-down challenge for doctors and other medical professionals. But what about those students who were just entering a medical school, like UC San Diego, as the coronavirus ravaged communities and crippled hospitals? KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has their story. This is the sound of doctors practicing medicine. At least a dozen of them working with support staff and experienced colleagues. Some of these doctors are second-year students from the UC San Diego Medical School. The classroom on this particular Wednesday evening is the free clinic housed in rooms and an auditorium at Pacific Beach United Methodist Church. Justine Panion is the designated clinic general manager. She's a second-year medical student who survived her first-year program, gripped in the chaos of COVID-19. It was just really inspiring seeing everybody really unite in order to address this pandemic. It really showed me that you didn't have to be directly on the front lines in order to fight the pandemic. They didn't let it stop them from being incredible medical students. Dr. Natalie Rodriguez is the UCSD associate clinical professor and mentor to these students. She was a young medical student herself when she started volunteering at the free clinic 20 years ago. 13 years ago, she became the attending physician who now beams with pride when talking about her students. They bring their enthusiasm, their compassion, their passion, their innovation, especially this past year with COVID. The only time Justin was ever in the hospital was for his birth. Dr. Rodriguez and her students are back to in-person classes on the UCSD campus this fall after a year of distance learning, the critical first year of medical school. Sometimes it can help to dim the light in the room that might make the baby more likely to open their eyes. Morgan is happy to finally be in person and in community with her other classmates who also trudged through a year of Zoom classes. Morgan preferred to give only her first name as she shared personal memories and her experience, like the first day of medical school at home. Our education was, some people would say, disrupted in that we value all of the clinical work that we have just so much. It's like working at the free clinic, getting to see a patient, um, getting to do a physical, it does just make you appreciate the opportunities that you have um, when you understand that they could be taken away and that they could have been very different. Despite the challenge, second-year student Irvi Gupta never gave up hope. After spending the first critical year of medical school in distance learning, she also dealt with the devastation caused by COVID-19 in her family's home country of India. If anything, she says the experience will make her a better doctor. No matter what the media and what the platform, our first priority is always just making the patients feel comfortable and making sure we're providing excellent care. And so I think this past year has shown us that no matter what the situation that we're put in, we can do that. The COVID shutdown did not stop the Wednesday weekly free clinic in Pacific Beach. And these then first-year students also encountered a sudden lesson in social justice. We had just come off of the Black Lives Matter protests 
and it really just exploded this entire introspection into racial injustice and just health equity. In fact, the racial divide triggered in 2020 inspired the creation of a new enhanced health equity curriculum at the UCSD Medical School, engaging students in how to treat people of different beliefs and backgrounds. Dr. Rodriguez could not be more proud of their accomplishments. It just gives me so much hope for the future of medicine, knowing that they're going to go out there and make such a difference in the world and in healthcare. That's some good medicine we can all use. Joining me is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome. Good morning. Now, you're usually reporting on K-12 through education in San Diego. What got you interested in medical school students? One of the uh, many hats that I wear in my life is I'm an actor, and I actually had uh, been working with the medical school as a standardized patient. And what that job entails is playing a sick patient for medical uh, students. And so that began my relationship several years ago. And so I, you know, thought, what's going on with them in the time of COVID? And uh, it was quite an interesting story um, as I talked to several uh, students at the school. Did the med school students you spoke with tell you they feel at a disadvantage now because their first year of training was online? There certainly was that, because imagine, if you will, getting the call or the email in December 2019, congratulations, you're in med school, and then two months later, everything shut down. Uh, So there was a question, what is medical school going to look like? But uh, having moved through that, uh, these are people who fought to get into medical school, so they are definitely uh, strong in um in their conviction to become doctors. So while it was a setback, uh, they dealt with it and uh, clearly uh, are are moving ahead uh, in their pursuit of medicine. How did UCSD actually handle remote learning for medical students? I mean, medicine is so dependent on lab classes and hands-on learning. Like everybody else, it was all about the Zoom. And so that's where they started. And in the early months of medical school, I'm told, um, there's a lot of lectures and a lot of book learning, so to speak. So that part of it was not um, was easy to fix with a, with a Zoom call. But they did actually meet very, very uh, infrequently uh, for anat- anatomy classes, but that was all, you know, socially distanced and with masks. But for the most part, I'd say over 95% of what they did in that first year was um, online and through Zoom. Are all UC San Diego Medical School classes in person this year? They are back in person, and we got to follow uh, some of them in class, and um, and they're adapting. Uh, several of the students I spoke with said it was odd to actually be in the same room with uh, people that they had been working with for almost a year, classmates and professors. Uh, And like most of us, we're, you know, getting back into what is it like to be social with people in person. Med school applications rose during COVID, and some experts kind of liken the effect to people signing up for military service after 9-11. Did the pandemic increase the dedication of these students? I think it definitely gave them more purpose. Um, I asked that question, why med school? And um, they said as things started to unravel, they began to realize how significant their commitment was. Uh, One one student that I talked to, um, her parents actually both got 
COVID. Um, and so she had, she, she did not. And so she had to quarantine from them, but this was while she was, you know, studying, uh, her, her medical, um, curriculum. So, uh, it definitely affected students directly. And, uh, at the same time, I think gave them even more conviction, uh, to get through this and to get out there and to help people. I remember some medical school students who were about to graduate and begin their residencies last year. They were actually put on the front lines because hospitals were so swamped with COVID patients. That must have given all medical school students a a sharp reminder of the risks they could face. Absolutely. And uh, as I said, you know, the medical students uh, were a little disappointed, but in the end, Basically, most of them said, hey, we're happy to be here, and we know there's a risk in practicing medicine, uh, and we believe that maybe this could be the greatest lesson of medical school uh, of all, uh, given that it is the pandemic that none of us has experienced in our lifetime. Tell us more about what the UC San Diego Medical School students actually do at the free clinic in Pacific Beach. The free clinic at Pacific Beach has been operating for well over 20 years, and they volunteer there as medical students, and there are medical students, first, second, third, and fourth year students. And it's it's basic medical care for people who need it the most, who don't have money. Uh, to to uh, get uh, health care that they that they need. They have uh, dentistry students who come and there are students who are studying uh, mental health and uh, optometry. So it really is a community effort um, to help those uh, who don't have the finances um, to get proper health care. Now, the social justice demonstrations of last year will apparently have a lasting impact on UC San Diego Med School. So is the health equity curriculum a brand new part of medical training at the school? When I was working with students as a standardized patient, uh, there was a little bit of that uh, discussion about uh, different backgrounds and religious beliefs and so forth. But given what happened in 2020, uh, the school committed to a curriculum that is new and that is more engaging and goes to a deeper level of just uh, of not just um, you know basic concepts, but really what does it mean to have someone you are treating who doesn't believe in science or questions like that uh, that they will now have uh, deep conversation and more importantly learning in curriculum. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you. Thank you. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. San Diego Asian Film Festival is back in person with 130 films from 20 countries screening at four venues. The festival kicks off tonight at the San Diego Natural History Museum. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando previews the festival with its artistic director, Brian Hu. Brian, the San Diego Asian Film Festival has been on hiatus like so many events because of COVID. You are returning to in-person events right now, coming up. So what does that feel like? It's a little eerie, which may be 
uh, appropriate for Halloween. <laughs> it's a little bit like, are, are these going to be empty theaters? Is it going to be creaking in places that we didn't realize? Are there going to be cobwebs? I'm half joking. We've been in there and it's magnificent, right? Like you just breathe in the theater air. I've been in the projection booth. We're getting everything geared up and we're just waiting for the audiences to pour in. But yeah, but a little bit of apprehension, not going to lie. Um, but that's that's normal. Like festivals are, you never know what's going to happen. That's also makes it fun. Yeah, the lineup is great. And you have a wonderful mix of films, which is something that I always appreciate. So you have two documentaries, very different, Writing with Fire and Inside the Red Brick Wall. These are two that really speak to the moment in powerful ways. Inside the Red Brick Wall is about 2019 protests. And I mean, such a powerful documentary in, in that it is that the filmmakers are amongst the protesters while this is all happening. No one knows it's going to happen. People are talking about, we may not see each other again because this may be like Tiananmen Square in Hong Kong. But also getting a sense of the courage of these filmmakers to persist because they see these protesters are too. So they need to be there to document it all. This is historic. Start one, take one. And the Writing with Fire is, um, it's, it's a little bit different in that it's more of a historical look, right? It's, you're following people across many months uh, and years in, in their careers as journalists. But this one speaks to the contemporary moment of the importance of journalism, that we need people who can tell the stories, that official media um, that's, often, um, what, what, that, that's often under the influence of the powerful, uh, sometimes are unable to tackle uh, like, like issues, especially issues regarding women and um, about the poor. Um, so Writing with Fire is about just these intrepid women who have become journalists because they pick up phones and they figure out a way to get their stories on YouTube and online. And they become kind of these local heroes, like folk heroes even. So inspiring to see them kind of persist through it all. But you also get a sense of the stakes of journalism and why it's so important. I appreciate the fact that you program films that are popular entertainment or films that are, you know, what you would call crowd pleasers in the sense that audiences will come to it because it's an enjoyable film. But you also like to program films, which I love, which are a little out of the mainstream or tweak expectations in interesting ways. And one that you had was Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which really kind of presents itself one way and then evolves in ways that really surprise you. This is a collection of three short films directed by Ryosuke Hamaguchi, who is one of my favorite directors these days. And he's also the director of Drive My Car, which is our closing film. But yeah, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, I mean, I don't want to give away too much about it because the whole premise is that these are three short films about coincidences. When people who don't expect to meet each other end up doing so, the dance they do around each other and the, what it reveals about themselves and and also like their ability to be sometimes not sometimes kind of cruel <laughs> um, and it's wow and, and it's such a joy to see a director know how to squeeze every ounce of drama from unexpected directions um, not in any like melodramatic or scandalous way but in a way that really cuts to the moral stakes or the the kind of the, the, the possibilities of tension on screen. And this year you have some older titles. You've always had Mystery Kung Fu Theater, which is something I adore, which is where you don't tell us what you're showing, but it will be an old kung fu movie. But this year you also have some interesting older titles in Execution in Autumn, which is an older Taiwanese film, and then 
celebrating Wayne Wang with dim sum. Uh, tell me a little bit about Execution in Autumn. Lo and behold, this was recently restored. It's in this gloriful widescreen English subtitles, and it looks magnificent. It's also directed by this filmmaker named Li Xing, um, one of the legends of Taiwan cinema before the new wave of the 1980s. And, and he passed away in August. But now we must, we really must show this movie. In part because I think Taiwan cinema is, is associated with sort of these art films from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. But let's talk about what happened before. And this is also kind of a, a juicy drama of ethics and family <laughs> that really stretches our definitions of, of family. It's a wonderful treat uh, to be able to see on the big screen. Uh, is, are there any other titles that you'd like to highlight for audiences? There are always there's endless films that I want to highlight. One's another really fun one called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. It's kind of a stunt movie uh, in that it's like a single take, but it's a hilarious gag that they run for 70 minutes, which is like the perfect running time for these kinds of movies. It's about this guy. He's like a Japanese cafe. He notices that the security camera has like a two minute delay to what he sees on his on his computer. And he starts to play like, wait, what if I go over there? Then does that mean I'm two minutes in the past? Or now am I two minutes in the future? Anyways, he uses this as a premise to go into, to, to, to time travel, basically. Uh, films have often used single take as a kind of like technical stunt. But there's something about a, the single take in a single location now, especially we've since we've been at home all this time, <laughs> that I think it has a special meaning. And it, like, I just love seeing people who who makes so much out of so little, right? Like you're, we're all, we've all been stuck in our homes. We've all had to like improvise new kinds of, of, of joy. And this is a film that puts that on display in full force. So I would definitely would recommend that one. Well, talking about improvising some joy, you are also having the double feature of Lumpia and Lumpia with a Vengeance, which is very much a kind of do-it-yourself filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, we've been uh, talking about how like, like Shang-Chi is this like landmark Asian-American comic book movie. And it is, it totally is. But I, I always like to say it's not the first one. And if this, is, if this double feature is to be believed, it's not even the second one. <laughs> like, like Patricio Ganels, uh, like in, in the 1990s, he and his friends, they were in high school. They just m made their own movies on digital videotapes. And it was just like, you know, like if you're in high school, you know about bullies and you know, but you also have a certain culture, like they're all Filipino American kids and they see like all these tensions even within the Filipino community. And they're just like just improvising their own sense of self-worth and heroism and, and cultural joy. And they turned it into this, you know, like a comic book movie called Lumpia about a Lumpia flinging superhero. Um, and it became like something of a cult hit amongst Filipino Americans because it spoke directly to their cultural uniqueness and also, but from the perspective of not necessarily like historical trauma, but from like, let's, let's have fun with this. Um, like, let's, let's go into theater and celebrate each other uh, through a superhero movie. And it became such a cult hit that in 2020, they finally finished their long awaited sequel called Lumpia with a vengeance. Uh, and for me, it's a vengeance, not just in, in like the comic book sense, but vengeance also like, you know, we've been out of the scene for, for over a decade. We want to come back with a sort of explosiveness and, and, and also to remind everybody that us old timers still got it. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the upcoming San Diego Asian Film Festival, and I will see you at Mystery Kung Fu Theater. I can't wait to see you there. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Brian Hu of San Diego Asian Film Festival. The festival runs tonight through November 6th at multiple venues.